Okay, so um, I think, in a way, what we're going to say might be the statement of the bleeding obvious, and you'll probably go away going, well, obviously. I think we've got to try and prove to you that it is true, what we're going to say, and validate it. But what's, I think, interesting about it, if, if we can demonstrate to you the value of recognising uncertainty, what we're going to try and illustrate is some of the consequences and the changes in decision-making and in behaviour that that could bring about. And one might say, well, this is all irrelevant, really, because, you know, we all know everything's uncertain. And yet, and yet, we have seen a series of major problems, in my case, in financial markets, the thing I'm closest to, but I do look at modelling of ca catastrophic risks. And for some reason, we seem to have been gulled into this idea that we know more than we do. And so really, in, in a way, I think we're asking everyone to step back from what we think we know and what the sort of triumph of science is and see where are those boundaries of knowledge. Maybe we can't achieve this full understanding and this full certainty. And if that's the case, what do we do about it? So that's really the gist of our talk today. We're going to talk initially about what we see as a perceived need, particularly, I think, at the end of the last century. It's almost the culmination of the what we'll... Um, called the Kelvin model, um, we'll see the perceived need to eliminate uncertainty, science being about removal of uncertainty. So Jerry's going to talk about that. I'm going to talk about delusional certitude, which is really to do with the use of models and how models have, have fooled us. But I will touch on what I'm terming willful blindness, which is where people decide it's inconvenient to do a full analysis because it actually isn't going to support whatever particular political uh, or economic objective they've got. Having, I hope, demonstrated to you that uh, there is a problem with the recognition of uncertainty, what we'll end up trying to do is turn it round and say, well, if that's the case, is this advantageous or is it not advantageous? What does that mean in terms of how we'd assess our options and how we'd make decisions? Uh, and can we make better decisions? And in fact, Jerry and I both have sort of two sets of tools, which I hope you'll find interesting. They're quite varied. Um, and those tools are, are ways in which one can use the knowledge of uncertainty to be better informed and hopefully make better decisions. Before we do that, what we'd like to talk about um, are the, I call the ethics of uncertainty. And I think this is quite important. And in a way, we try to disguise our our views as sort of objective realities and something above our judgments of right and wrong. But we think, actually, the assessment of what we think is right and wrong is quite important. So um, uncertainty is generally, I think, we'd say, seen as a bad thing. It's generally undesirable. And what I'm going to try and demonstrate to you are the false certainties one gets from um, the term is useless arithmetic, because there's a wonderful book by Pilkey and Pilkey on useless arithmetic, which if you haven't read, I'm sure you'll enjoy. And also um, talk a bit about the consequences of authority metrics. So if you're in Mid-Staffordshire Health Authority and you unfortunately were a patient there, you might, um, of course, now realise you were a victim of some target setting. And in my financial markets, people like to set targets. They're normally numbers. And those numbers, they believe, represent better performance. A, a beneficial outcome. 
And yet, what happens is, of course, the system turns around and, and bites you, and it turns out you don't get the desirable outcome you want, you actually get a worse situation. And this lack of judgment, this narrowing and focusing on the very precise, crisp numbers, is, we think, what is to blame with a lot of the malaises that we see in society today. Uh, so we'll try and demonstrate that to you in a minute. Um, Jerry will just talk a bit about, OK, let's suppose we do recognise uncertainty. Is that good or is that bad? Because it may or may not be a good thing. So, Jerry, a few comments on the good and bad of recognising uncertainty. Yes, well, in recent years, uh, people concerned with the environment have pushed the point that there are things called unintended or unanticipated consequences of our actions. Uh, this awareness is fairly recent, and the response to this has been to um, frame and then try to enforce uh, something called the <coughs> precautionary principle. And this then becomes a principle of action, how one responds to warnings which are not definitive science and yet which are serious. Now there's been a great bit of debate about this, uh, partly because opponents will say uh, that it paralyzes action since it is always possible to imagine some adverse consequence uh, and therefore we should do nothing. Uh, I think there's a classic argument was once said that if the precautionary principle uh, were applied in full rigor, we would never have railways uh, or steamboats or anything like that because there will always be imaginable or real adverse consequences. So um, the precautionary principle itself, even as advanced by, um, let's say, environmentally conscious uh, forces, has been contested, and clearly its application comes down to the management of uncertainties of all sorts, quantitative and non-quantitative, the assignment of burden of proof, which can actually be crucial in any such case in practice. So uh, the management of uncertainty becomes absolutely critical in environmental policy and is a large, strongly contested field. Those who are always advocating the management of uh, the recognition of uncertainty then have this embarrassing case where uh, certain forces uh, who are uh, producing things where the effects are not 100% certain, will then say, well, uh, we don't really know, and therefore let's do more research before we take any action. And uh, quite notoriously, the tobacco industry, mainly in the States, uh, got into the position of one of, the, one of their spokesmen, one of their executives once said, uh, what we do is we manufacture doubt. And this was actually picked up, and there's a book of that title, The People Who Manufacture Doubt. And all of the skeptical critics of <coughs> positivistic science and positivistic uh, risk analysis uh, found their own uh, intellectual weapons being used by these uh, bad people in the tobacco industry, saying, well, I mean, a lot, many jobs depend on this, and so on, so on, so on. And have you really, really, really proved? Uh, that uh, tobacco smoking causes cancer. Many people get cancer without smoking, many people smoke without cancer, and so really uh, we manufacture doubt. The case gets even more complicated, I won't go into it. 
So then uh, there comes a general sense uh, that when one pushes uncertainty in the if public affairs that are defined by science, uh, doesn't this cause the public to lose trust in science? And uh, this is quite a crucial issue right now, even as I speak, because there are not very many great institutions of our society which still retain public trust. Uh, you know, we've knocked off big tobacco, big food, big pharma, big finance, and in a sense all we're left with is big science, uh, represented in what will be happening here, and if big science goes, then our whole modern culture is really in big trouble. And certainly there are people who have argued, play it cool, you know, uh, don't wash dirty linen in public because it will cause loss of trust. And that's partly because if people have grown up feeling secure uh, about science, certainly, and I've argued this at length in various places, uh, when somebody goes through an education in science for maybe 10, 15 years, the most formative period of their lives intellectually, they are fed a diet of certainty. Uh, one rarely sees uh, a, an exam question which is uh, asking people uh, for doubt or judgment. And so, hold it, hold it, hold it. I'm about to tell the joke. So we uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's, the, it's the best joke. It's our only joke. Joke is coming. Yeah. Actually, I gave, I used this years ago. I gave a lecture on my stuff in the states, and as I said, students there learn physics, chemistry, biology, and every book has the answers to the questions at the back. So you always know at the end of each chapter there's a whole lot of questions, but don't worry because the answers are at the back of the book. And then, as I say, you leave the classroom, you go out to study the great book of nature, and sure enough, the answers are at the back of the book. Or so you are led to believe. And then when you find the great book of nature doesn't have answers at the back of the book, you are very concerned, you're lost, and you lose faith in science and all sorts of horrible things like that. So that is the real as it were, cultural political dilemma in which we now find ourselves. So, we're now going to talk a bit about the problem, try and justify all these wild statements we've been making uh, and jokes. And uh, Jerry's going to start uh, looking at um, sort of his specialist subject, the history of science. And uh, over to you on. So, that's enough. Now, uh, not to start a, a lecture on the history of the philosophy of science. But what we can say briefly is that from the time of the scientific revolution onwards, uh, the concern of the great prophetic geniuses who created modern science was achieving certainty, uh, certain knowledge, and doing that through the mathematical quantitative approach, rejecting scholastic Aristotle, rejecting the magicians and all that. And so if you look at Descartes and Galileo in particular, you'll see uh, this commitment that error is very, very bad. Uh, the whole idea of learning from mistakes is a very, very modern one. Uncertainty is pretty bad. Uh, accuracy is a good thing. And of course, the great good in science is to have higher precision. Uh, and they all, along with everything else, they rejected and forgot from Aristotle. They rejected and forgot this one, bingo. 
and this is Aristotle's Nicomachean Ethics, right near the beginning. It is the mark of an educated man to look for precision in each class of things just so far as the nature of the subject admits. And he went on to say that we don't expect someone studying ethics to have the same precision as geometry. Uh, he didn't mention neoclassical economics because it didn't exist in his time. <laughs> so actually, this whole idea received its greatest expression in um, late 19th century physics, when indeed uh, accuracy and precision were achieved to an unimaginable, fifth hitherto unimaginable degree. And I quote Kelvin there, because at one stage in 1900, uh, he said, the task of science now is to add another decimal point. That's all you can see happening in physics. Just like the great mathematician and philosopher Poincaré said, we have now achieved perfect rigor in mathematics. Not knowing that Cantor was there with the diagonal proof in his pocket. Okay, so Kelvin science really goes on through all, the, even continues into early quantum theory. Uh, as Peter said, quantum electrodynamics has accuracy and precision uh, to a fantastic degree. However, um, so this is a chart you'll have seen probably many times. It's the famous sort of arrows or darts on the dartboard and trying to distinguish accuracy and precision. So we're going to try and um, work out what uh, we think actually happens. We'd like that because that's our objective. We just heard that's the objective. It's what we'd like to have. And so what we do is we have a go and we do a... Um, our first model's a bit out. And what we do then is we make that really precise. When actually that was the answer. So the answer was it wasn't necessarily possible to get precision. It was possible to get accuracy, but it wasn't possible to get precision. And what people have done is concentrate on the accuracy, uh, on the precision, precision, rather than the accuracy. And there's a, we, we like our quotes at this stage of the talk. Um, in fact, a bit further on, you'll see a few. And uh, Bertrand Russell said, everything is vague to a degree. And you don't realize that until you try to make it precise. So what we're going to try and argue now with some examples is, uh, is uh, seeing this thing in action and its adverse consequences. Uh, before we do that, I've got a few quotes for you. This is a kind of the zeitgeist, in a way, about um, the nature of uncertainty. So I've got three quotes. One is from John Kay, the LSE economist. He's written a book called Obliquity. And um, he just says, hard to overstate damage done by people... Um, who thought they knew more about the world than they really did. And I'm going to try and justify that in a minute. Um, this is, uh, you won't have heard of Tad Montross, the head of General Rhee, who I used to work for. Um, but, but he looks at uh, models, computer models, and looking at the financial services industry. And uh, he thinks, in his view, and I think others share it, that probably the greatest damage that's been done to financial institutions has been because of the inappropriate use of models in 2010. 2011, uh, Dave Spiegelhalter, who is the Professor of the uh, Public Understanding of Risk at Cambridge, and um, he was uh, worked for the Medical Research Council, was here actually the same time I was, back in the 1970s. Um, and in a way, this paper, which I, I do commend to you, um, Phil Trans-Roystock of uh, 2011, and what he does there is, um, I think he has a Damascene experience. 
And he says, actually, you might not know. And I've got another quote from him later on. But this from a scientist and for the public understanding of risk, coming off the horse that says, we'll get ever more precise estimates of our whatever it is we need to estimate in risk, and saying, actually, we might not know. And we might need to use judgment. And we might even have to show humility. Uh, so there's this wonderful book I mentioned earlier on called Useless Arithmetic. It's uh, a dead, quick, easy read, published in 2009. See what I mean? It's all about the end of the um, first decade of the 21st century, all this sort of came out. And they, they highlighted a number of, uh, sort of, I suppose, uh, political disgraces. And I'll just give three. The first one was the demise of the cod fisheries off the Grand Banks, the greatest, uh, the greatest fishing grounds I think there have ever been. Certainly, there were at this time in the, um, you know, this this age. And what happens is that the Canadian government had a model which was called the maximum sustainable yield. <coughs> And the model was widely used to promote their policies of fishing out these grand banks. And it was quite convenient because they could keep the fishermen going. But unfortunately, they decimated. That didn't decimate. They destroyed the cod stocks in the grand banks. So the greatest fishery in the world was destroyed by a computer model. Uh, this is quite close to Oren Pilkey's heart, this um, beach erosion thing. You know, with our wonderful science, we can work out how beaches erode. You'd have thought so, wouldn't you? It's bound to be elementary. It's bound to be, I mean, honestly. Work out how beach erodes in, in, uh, Carolina, in the Carolinas. And uh, it turns out we're not good at it. In fact, it turns out we get it wrong all the time. And, and it's attributable to a false rule, the Brune rule for beach erosion, which is, looks quasi-scientific and has these calculations... And it works about, you know, the effect of sea level rise and so on and so forth. It's just wrong, as the guy demonstrates with a number of examples. And yet that is still in use. And you'll often hear people saying, actually, they do know how to put in beach defences. And what Pilkey argues is they don't. And the evidence is in that they don't. And then there's this sort of uh, uh, <clears throat> big business problem with, um, what's they call, open open uh, mining and this is called uh, Cups of Poison is the chapter and what happens is that if you do this sort of open uh, pit mining in uh, the Rockies then eventually water fills in and it gets very polluted and if you don't stop it then it will seep out, it'll go down the rivers into the sea and, and this is toxic to a marked degree forget you know, nuclear, although some of this might even be radioactive, but it's essentially extremely toxic to life. And so what happens is that people create models to justify, to get a license in order to do the open pit mining, and they use models to do it. And this is their quote about the models. They admit to uncertainties and complexities. Well, it's very complex, you know, it's very complex. A bit like I looked up something on the greenhouse effect, which I suggest you do too. And I tried to find out I'm a molecular physicist, so I, I kind of do know a bit about it. And I thought, I'll just find, just prove to myself molecular physics that greenhouse effect is really a real effect. Um, and then you find quotes like that in the literature. We are knit to answer this complexity. And what they do, of course, in this case, is they admit to it, and yet in the end they ignore them 
and they take the models and the models justify the political ends that they want. So this is more than delusional certainty. This is willful blindness. Willful because it's in their own interests. Here's one which is a bit weirder. So you may remember we had the tsunami off the <coughs> coast of Japan uh, in 2011. And what happened then is um, it went along, this is a the subduction zone, the Japan Trench. And the model that the United States Geological Survey used was the conventional model of the time, and the Japanese seismologists did too, and it's called the segment model. And in the segment model, you can only have a, have a rupture of a maximum uh, magnitude of 8.2. So that's all right then. Except the Sumatra earthquake had shown that the segment model was wrong. And so it was known in the literature that it was wrong and it didn't work. And yet everyone, the Japanese, one might say willfully, I, I wouldn't like to say really, but certainly in my industry of, uh, of insurance catastrophe risk, we didn't know. Uh, we didn't realise the model was wrong. So we didn't have anything in our models <clears throat> for an earthquake of that size and we didn't have anything in our models for tsunami of that size. And of course, when it happens, everyone goes, oh, do you know, darn it. You know, the model, we knew the model was wrong. There's a model, current model, right? Well, funny enough, one of our things in, um, I'm involved in a, a, an initiative called OASIS, which is open source catastrophe modeling. One of our initiatives has got researchers at UCL looking at um, tsunamis in the Cascadia region, which is uh, northwest um, United States and Canada. And what they, um, what they do is they have to model the movement of the Earth's crust because that creates the vertical displacement. Then they have a wave propagation system. I actually run here at Oxford called Volmer that works out how it, the wave then propagates into the indented coastline in, around Vancouver and Seattle. So that all sounds fine. But they don't have any real clue at all about the underlying seismology. It's absolutely extraordinary how little we know about the nature of those original earthquakes and the degree to which they give vertical displacement and I said surely, surely you must know about this surely, surely, surely and the answer is no, sorry but we've got a great model for it, don't worry everything's fine, everything's fine. Um, so here's the message out of this the models were all inconvenient but they were all wrong and they all had adverse consequences so it's actually reasonably serious and I haven't even mentioned the, the, the famous you might have heard of this, the formula that killed Wall Street which is the famous Gaussian copula. So a copula is a mechanism by which you correlate things. And in the business of risk, if risks are correlated or active events are correlated, then obviously they can lead to an accumulation of a much worse outcome than if they're uncorrelated, so they're independent. So a lot of risk management is about trying to get uncorrelated risks. And the copula defines the correlation between uh, these various outcomes. And the method they used for uh, pricing derivatives and um, what their creditworthiness was, was a method called the Gaussian copula. Now, the Gaussian, as you probably know, is a shape that rapidly goes to zero, very rapidly. So it means that uh, outside, and it's, a, it's basically an ellipse, so the correlation between things is defined by a rapidly decaying function. And that means a bad thing happening here isn't necessarily correlated with a bad thing happening over there. But what actually happened in the financial crisis, the subprime market, is they all went together. That's because they were highly correlated. 
very commonly the higher cut. The model didn't allow it, and the model was the same model as was used by the rating agencies. So you could argue that the financial crisis is a direct consequence of an inappropriate model. So what might we do about that? I hope we've convinced you. What might we do about it? Jerry? Well, this is all very much work in progress rather fitfully. Um, I have three ideas. One is what I call blobograms, the other are called decision portraits, and the third, which is not mine at all, nomograms. Let's look at blobograms. This came up when I was talking to some people in the geoengineering group here in Oxford, and somebody was giving a lecture about all the different ways in which we might geoengineer the ocean, and that is all in order to stop the accumulation of carbon dioxide, which is said to be the cause of global warming. And it struck me then that no, there were no numbers in any of this. So there, there were these, all these possibilities. But to say, well, this one has a probability of 0.37 and a harm of $6.22 billion, this is complete bloody nonsense. So what can you do? Well, you simply get yourself a graph. Uh, there you have improbability. There you have salience. This is very well known in risk analysis, I should say. Uh, you have some sort of scale, maybe qualitative, maybe semi-quantitative, run them up by factors of a thousand, and then you dot, you populate that graph with these different sorts of things. Um, there you have actually Mount Pinatubo, which is known to have uh, dumped a lot of junk into the atmosphere and helped us uh, keep cool. Uh, on the other hand, oh, that's right, John, this guy named John Martin argued that with a half a tanker full of iron filings he could stop uh, CO2 forever. Uh, I put that fairly far out in improbability. Uh, another idea, well, it looks like if you do it the wrong way you can get blooms, which is pretty probable, uh, deep oxygen de- depletion, which is maybe not so bad, uh, way out there, we really know what the hell's going on, you have ecosystem damage. So, in a way, you can have some of those blobs tighter, more brightly colored. Yes? How do we define the probability of this? Sorry? How do we define the probability of this? I'm sorry? How do we define the probability of this? The probability? Yeah. Well, that comes, I mean, to say the truth, I did this in the course of a lecture, and that's the point of it. It's real back-of-envelope stuff. And so, uh, improbability, well, maybe you have 10 to the minus 6 at the middle. In other words, you can go through, you don't really know the numbers. That's the point. You don't know the numbers. And so, as I would say, if you ask me, I'd say, well, the middle thing would be 10 to the minus 6, which is really at the limit of any quantification. So then, if you're going further up, well, we really can't quantify it at all. Uh, If you go up there, the salience, again, you can start running up to maybe a billion, if you wish, at the middle. Beyond that, you're in some sort of unknown nightmare scenario. So the beauty of this approach is, you say, we don't know the numbers. We won't know the numbers. But what we can do is what engineers and architects have traditionally done. You take an envelope and you work on the back of it. But instead of having numbers on the back of the envelope, you have blobs. At least then you are aware of your ignorance.
and somebody says, oh no, let's bring this one in. Okay, bring it in. Now, that method can be um, made a little bit more rigorous. Let's try the next one. That's right. I played it with this for a while, and I took an example from what was going on in my own neighborhood. Uh, someone is going to be buying up a plot of land for building some houses. It's a very complex thing, full of all sorts of uncertainties. You don't know what the market will be like, you don't know what the planners will be like, all sorts of stuff. And so again, you see I did a lot of work on this because I did a quantitative scale, uh, all logged, and the key thing there is, uh, let's say, I paired things. So here, just look at one. If you build on a high density, if you plan for a high density on the site, that's, you make a lot of money that way, but then it may be rejection by the planners, and then the whole thing is cast, thrown back into limbo, you lose a year, and so that's a cost. Uh, you may balance that out. In that case, I found no significant difference. Uh, the site that I knew about was on low-lying land reaching down to the river. Well, uh, if it's too low down, you get everything going, and then you find out that Nowadays, not three years ago, nowadays you won't get insurance cover. And so the land is worthless. So, in that, and again, you see there I actually quantify it, kind of quantitative scale, but on the other hand, my information there is in blobs. Now, at that point, I was doing the whole thing with Word, and that's the best I could do in the way of a blob. I mean, I didn't bother doing it with Corel, with big blobby things just as an indication that you can think semi-quantitatively in a rigorous way. Okay, the last gadget is not mine at all. It's called nomograms. Uh, look them up, and this comes from Wikipedia. Wikipedia article, nomograms, it seems. Nomograms are invented. Uh, sorry, graphical methods for practical calculations had been in use for centuries. Uh, one of Galileo's earliest inventions was what we call a military compass where you do lines and lines and lines. There are scales on the side of this thing. I'm sure there'll be some over at the History of Science Museum. Now, this Frenchman said, oh, well, you can actually uh, do the whole thing in a very general way. This is for food safety. And so here you have one quality scale. Here you have another intensity scale. You run a line between them, and you get a number. And then you take that number, and you start over here, and you do something else. And bit by bit, you, you accumulate numbers, which you can then manipulate. Okay? Now, you can say, well, these scales are arbitrary. They're always arbitrary. But at least here, everything is visible. And if someone says, I don't like that scale, you say, okay, let's discuss it. Now, the other thing about nomograms, and this is what I came to see more clearly, and this is a technology I've not yet developed, so at the back end, you get a nice big scale here, and it says it's happy, it's bad, or whatever. Suppose one imagined taking these things and having a sequence of them, where instead of just a line, you had a sort of blobby line. And so the uncertainties here would then be magnified. And if after a half a dozen iterations, you found that the initial fuzzy thing came to absorb the whole space. Then you would say, I think I've written it down. Sorry. Yeah. Middle thing. 
The use of blobs of nomograms would enable us the identification models that are strictly nonsensical, GIGO. So there is a class of models which do not merely fail to represent the reality which is intended or named, but in fact, as I say, the uncertainties in the input must be suppressed lest the outputs become indeterminate. And if you get a modeler out in the pub and say, between you and me, what proportion of these models would qualify for GIGO? Um, it depends on how happy he is, uh, what he will say to you. There is a great deal of GIGO out there which cannot be recognized for all the obvious reasons. And again, because we still believe, and as part of our ruling culture to believe, if you have quantitative data and mathematical models, what can be wrong? Quantitative data, mathematical models, what can be wrong? Over to you. Indeed. Now that, I have to say, makes me re- very, very uneasy, all that stuff. Um, because I'm really a quant at heart. <laughs> and so you're going to hear a set of tools which are more quant-based now. But they do have the same underlying questions that are trying to be addressed. So I've got three. One is about a thing I call second-order probability, which I think is really, really important. And uh, means that the basic concept of probability does mislead us very, very easily. And I can illustrate how very quickly, I think. Slightly technical. The second one, and that's a picture from a computer game called Dawn of War, which has a thing called the Fog of War, um, is how one can explore the potential outcomes. Because what models do is, and thinking it constrains you. And if you can break out of it, can you find tools that let you see the range of possibilities that could occur that you unwittingly disregarded in your model? And I've got a good example very simple example of that. The third one is a reference to a, uh, a book called The Logic of Failure by a man called Dietrich Dorner, who's a cognitive psychologist, and I'll explain what he did and what he found. Um, there's a paper famously written in 1981 on the quantitative definition of risk by Kaplan and Garrick, and I've got another paper there which is a sort of more up-to-date um, view of it. And what it talks about there, it talks about second-order risk. And what we can think of that is the probability of probabilities. And you go, oh, probability of probabilities. What's the probability of the probability of the probability of the, you know, the never-ending hierarchy of probabilities? But what they say is actually you can take a Bayesian view of a frequentist view. And that is to say you can make, start making assessments of models and model risk. And the example I'm going to give is slightly simpler because it's actually a parameter risk example. I'm going to talk about, it's slightly technical, but it's just kind of bear with me a second. When one looks at pricing risk or uncertainty, you start off with the probability distribution. Now, this thing doesn't look like a probability distribution because it's really a log... In fact, this is not so. This is a, um, it's a reciprocal of the probability against the amount of loss exceeds. But essentially, it's a cumulative probability distribution. We call them... EP curves, exceedance probability curves. In the banking industry, they're known as VAR or value at risk curves. So they're very widely used. And very importantly, the capital that is required in the EU for an insurance business and insurance risk is the one in 200 year point on that curve. That's how much capital you have to have. That's one of those wonderful you know, metrics from the authorities. And one in 200 years is quite an interesting sort of time because we don't know much about one in once in 200 years. But it's a 99.5% probability. 
And when you underwrite catastrophe risk, so the line isn't joining up, you look at the price, the mean, that's the annual average loss, and you look at some idea of its variability. But what you also do is you look at the cost of capital, and the dominant number in writing catastrophe risk is that number. And what happens nowadays, when underwriters have brought information about a risk, they're brought in a curve like that, the EP curve. So, Mr. Underwriter, that's a log scale, by the way, just to bear in mind. You'll see these charts later on in their full glory, but this is, this is how it's typically presented. So here's an example, as presented, and then we looked at the underlying, because um, this is all simulated with relative frequency, you do a lot of scenarios, and you run, in this case, to 50. We normally run something like, um, you know, 100 or 200 scenarios. So these are all realizations of the same damaging event, series of events. And that's what it actually looks like under the bonnet. Now, the difference between that and hmm, that is quite profound if you're pricing the risk. Because it turns out, it, you learn a number of things about it. It's multimodal, first of all. It's not even like it was, it was around, it's not even a Gaussian around the point. It's multimodal. It could be that actually this property is really of that class, or it could be of that class. You don't know. Now, the only reason we found out is because we looked at the probability distribution, which is this thing, of a metric relating to the probability distributions. So you say, is that a general thing you could do? And absolutely it is. Absolutely. Every time you have a probability distribution, you can say for any metric on that probability distribution, what is the distribution of that metric as a probability distribution? And when you get that, it tells you how confident you are in your assumption of that metric. Now, in really simple life, you know, if you're crossing a river and someone says, what's the, uh, what's the depth of the river? And Jerry says, don't worry, it's average three feet. Then, you know, we are wise enough normally to realise that maybe it might be 12 feet deep in the middle. Normally. Here, we're not. Because it's already a probability distribution. So, obviously, you know, it must be fine. Well, it's not. Um, and so this is called the probability of probabilities problem. And um, indeed, it was recognized in the industry. There's applied insurance researchers' view. That's the view from Guy Carpenter in 2011, by the way. That paper was suppressed for 13 years, interestingly, because it was an inconvenient truth that there was a great uncertainty in the models, because everyone liked that curve that I just showed you. And in Oasis, which is the initiative I said, we now compute those as a regular matter of course. Sorry, another question. Please, don't. You, you mentioned cost of capital. I did. Uh, how do you estimate that? Because there is, there might be a correction. If, if you give some range to the cost of capital, you may correct for some things. Uh, you can, you can. But what happens in businesses is that actually capital is allocated. So the business allocates the capital to the underwriter, and it determines what they can write. And we notionally would put a, an associated cost of the capital in the business. So we normally say something like 10% or 20%. Mm -hmm. So you can actually quantify all of these numbers. And in fact, the models we used to provide to underwriters did do exactly that. And that meant that when they priced the risk, just going back to this point, sorry to go back to this, but if you're interested in this type of pricing, people love that because they kind of understand that. They use the standard deviation as a sort of hand-waving reason for increasing the price. But these numbers are really small. It's all about this number. And this number depends on how much it costs you as a business to borrow money. Now, in our case, we had an interesting problem because uh, we borrowed money from what we had money from our parent company, but it was pledged capital. But if we went wrong, 
we had a, apparently, the guy who owned it was, um, was um, Warren Buffett. So the issue for us was the embarrassment factor of having to go back to Warren Buffett because we got that curveball. So we did another metric, which I won't bore you with, called TVAR, which was the mean of the accession of that number. So yes, you can quantify all of that. Anyhow, um, so that's how it's turning out, is the way of thinking about these problems now is no longer a probability distribution, but the distribution, the probabilities and metrics related to that. Might sound obvious, I don't know, maybe it is, I don't know. Here's outcome space. So this is Dawn of War again. And uh, it's great when you play these games because you start off down there and you've got to work out in your mind, is it worth me my while sending a little man or whatever, satellite or something, over here to find out what's over here? It's a problem. The enemies could be there or all the resources could be there. So you don't know. Now, if you're thinking about modelling the world, you're interested in all the possible outcomes, but we're normally blind to a lot of them. Some of them, and I think there's a famous book, John Adams, it is, and it's called Risk. If you've ever seen it. Anyhow, it's black. There's a little circle down there. And that circle, he claims, is all we actually know about the risk. So he does, he does the fog of war in a different scale. So I'll give you a little example, a very simple example. When we do these catastrophe models, we assume certain events occur. And this is, um, this is like Hurricane Sandy, by the way. Hurricane Sandy was one of these. These are northeast windstorms. This is a New Orleans hurricane. But this is um, various trajectories of one in three. They're called, um, uh, this is a category three, one in a hundred year storm, meteorologically. Meteorologically, it would occur once in a hundred years. But it could have gone there, or there, or there, or there. In fact, the lady who does this, Karen Clark, who, by the way, was the founder of applied insurance research. She founded the entire catastrophe model industry. She's left them and founded this business because she doesn't think they're telling us enough about the outcomes. And she does 30 of these outcomes. And then she plots the effect on the book of business you've got in terms of the losses they would generate. And it's really spiky. And this is really important, because if you'd run the model, and the model had picked that event, you'd say, hey, fine, yeah, I'm okay. And it's only because the model provider chose that event as representative of the one in a hundred year category three storm, that it was a miss. They could have picked that one, in which case you'd have thought it's disastrous. So what do you do with this? It's really simple what you do with this. You go and you get rid of that bit of business, and you get rid of that bit of business. So in terms of action, it's incredibly simple. You run this scan over your book and you go, get rid of that, get rid of that. Think how many cases you could do this test on. Fantastic test. This is insurance, but it would apply to anything. Right, finally for me is the logic of failure. This is, um, as I said, Dawn is a cognitive psychologist. It's, uh, it's written some time ago, I think, about 15 years ago, maybe. Anyhow, some time ago. But um, what he did, he had uh, computer simulations and he got people and groups of people and saw how, they, um, how good their outcomes were. So we've probably all played these games in management training, or you, know, you might have done. Certainly, I've, I've had goes with them. And the question is, he, uh, he found out, he could characterize uh, losers, uh, you know, the failures. It's difficult to characterize winners, but one thing's for sure, he worked out how you could fail. And the characteristics of failure are really simple. And I guess we don't need to be told but here they are, and you need to watch them in daily life, because I thought this was fantastic. When you read it, you can just see yourself sitting there, making those bad decisions. 
And honestly, it's a, it's a great read. But anyhow, if you don't think about the problem ahead of time, you're not going to do very well. If you don't test the evidence, that's the point he's always making. If you're sitting there, and I haven't heard any bad, I haven't heard any bad things, must all, must all be right. So it's a bias confirming my actions when actually I should have found out whether it's working. Not, I haven't heard any bad news, so it's all fine. How many people do you know, particularly management, who say, I haven't heard anything bad, so it's fine? And then circumstances change. The big one is, how do you adapt to changing circumstances? Do you say, no, let's plow on? Or do you reappraise the situation in the light of the evidence? Typically, the winners were global thinkers, they're holistic thinkers, and very typically, the losers were local thinkers. And they're people who felt very unhappy with uncertainty. Very early on in the project, they said, right, we're going to do that, okay? Let's stick to that. That's it. Okay, everyone? We've agreed. And sure as eggs are eggs, they fail. And why is that relevant to us? I think it's relevant to us because it's this dealing with uncertainty, particularly in this situation over time. If the world's uncertain, and if the uncertainties develop over time, the trick is to change the method you use to assess your decisions and not to stick with some preconceived model. Um, and here's Dave Spiegelhalter again. And what he's doing is saying the same thing. So it's very interesting, isn't it? At this time, just at this you know, early part of the second decade of the 21st century, everyone's now going on about um, assumptions that may turn out to be misguided. So it's the whole modelling endeavour. So it's, uh, it's kind of obvious, isn't it, really? But, um, but the evidence is now in, I think, that we do need to take a wider view than just running very local, simple models. Um, so here's some implications before we have a discussion. Um, I'll talk about business because it's quite sort of the area I know. And I think it really has... The moment you turn the tables on this and you say, don't just run the black box... You know, remember to re-engage the brain about this because underlying it the black box doesn't tell you a number it isn't a crisp number that was, that was just being delusory it is actually a range of potential outcomes and what that means for pricing is that you, can, you have a right to make judgement on price the answer isn't 3.2 the answer is it's somewhere between 1 and 10 at a 90% confidence so what does that mean? it means I don't know you could have a uniform distribution between 1 and 10. It could be. Now, can you find out what it is? Yes, I think you can do a better job. Even if you do a better job, there's still a very large price spread. And suddenly, judgment's back. And when it comes to management, that judgment's really important now. Because the capital requirement I told you, and the regulator hasn't changed, by the way, management now needs to know they've got a wider spread of uncertainty in the way that they underwrite their business or they take on risk and the way um, that they uh, meet the capital requirements of a regulator. The third point is about regulation because in our markets the regulator is turning out to be very important. And uh, interestingly, I, I spoke to someone who worked at the FSA and I talked about, we talked about this over dinner and they said, do you know, we know about this. I said, wow. Wow, we mean you know about the the, uh, the fact that you there's a range of possible capital requirements. I said, yeah, we know about that. So I said, well, that's funny because nothing's happened. He said, that's because the EU won't change it, which is interesting, isn't it? 
Now, whether that's due to their, um, what did you say, the Cartesian view, but essentially they've set this very rigid one in 200 year model, and that's it. But it's not to say all regulators are blind to it, but at the moment, their hands are tied. And I think that's a real problem. And it's a real problem because the question they should be asking isn't whether you've got one in 200 year, but what is your risk, your model risk associated with that number you've just quoted to me? That's the question that should have been asked all along. Not about the number, but about the assumptions behind the number and the range of the outcomes it could have been. Um, so, in general, we're not advocating uncertainty be glorified at all. What we are advocating, though, is we shouldn't disguise our ignorance, and certainly not with delusionally certain models. We think, and this, I think, has genuinely wider application, that we can take advantage of the greater scope that uncertainty now offers us, and that means we need better tools in order to support those judgments, and they're different tools.